Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Tally ho and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the Commonwealth-spanning podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, wearing a black veil and staying at half-mast in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, happy to report the liberation of Car from Front Lawn in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> We focus on overlooked sci-fi, fantasy and horror films because we love future time lords excavating pagan temples, posh British knobs wielding broadswords and snake ladies in fetish wear drowning boy scouts. Dan, <laughs> yes. how are you? Ah, uh, yes, I, I'm looking forward to this episode. I, I'm good. <laughs> how are you, Conrad? <laughs> I'm very well. I mean, obviously, I am in a state of mourning uh, because... The head of state of my country has passed away. So, yes, yes. deeply saddened, of course. Thoughts and prayers, yes. etc. I mean, the, the Queen, she had a good run. She did. Yeah, 70 years in, a, in the same job. It's not bad, is it, really, for job security? Yeah, and, and Australia being part of the Commonwealth, we are, in fact, getting a, a, hol- a public holiday. You are. <laughs> um, yes, yes. A uh, morning day next uh, Thursday, or this coming Thursday, I guess. By the time the episode comes out, it's already been, but um, part of the Commonwealth, the perks. There you go. Yeah, we're getting a day off the day that she is buried, which is uh, nice. I'm I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Obviously, I will be spending the whole day in contemplation of her great contribution to this country and the world. Yes, I I won't be just enjoying myself. No, anything like that. I don't think anyone will. No, no. So, Conrad, uh, anything in the mailbag today? Yes, uh, we had an email from Chris who wrote to us having gone through our back catalogue and he was listening to the episode on The Relic, which we did with Horror Queers Ah, some time ago. And he was talking about the fact that all of the issues that we brought up about Margot and the character Greg Lee, the Asian character that was Uh being really nasty and mercenary about research grants, Um, He says, in the book, it has a completely different arc. Margot's father has just died and the dramatic tension is her trying to decide whether or not to give up her studies and go home. And Greg, he says, is actually one of many who, while in direct competition with her for grants, says that her leaving would be a mistake. Oh, wow. He's a much more nuanced character than he is in the movie. Mm. And Chris also mentions that the main character that emerged and became like a central character in a whole series of novels FBI special agent Pendergast was cut from the movie Um, and he's um, a very hardcore Gary Stu that can do everything the plot requires Right. he suggests to try the audiobooks for Relic and Reliquary and you'll see just how cool the film could have been if they'd stuck more to the original material instead of simplifying things for the audience. Mm, the wow. Wow. It could have been a franchise. Could easily have been. Yeah. Mm. Lots of books by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. So Ooh, check yes. them out. 
We also heard from Stuart on Wolfen. Stuart's been wanting us to cover Wolfen for quite some time. Uh And he said, I'm excited to hear what you all and Serge have to say about Wolfen. Not a werewolf movie. They might be gods. The disheveled, edgy Albert Finney performance. The strangely toned Gregory Hines comedic one. The cinematography. The score. Getting those canis lupus to hit their marks. Van der Veer is Donald Trump, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know whether we were as enamoured by the movie, um, but yes, that that Trump character, definitely. I think so, yeah. So I hope we didn't uh, disappoint you too much, Stuart. I think we gave it a fair shake, but uh, Mm. ultimately we thought that it's probably a compromised movie. We'd like to see the director's original vision Mm. for it, for sure. Yeah. Dustin wrote to us to say, For some reason, Wolfen was extremely difficult to me to find a copy to watch. No video store in my area had a copy, and even moving to a larger city proved fruitless. I'd read both the book and the screenplay before. After a near decade-long search, I found a VHS rental copy in a CD bookstore in another town. Wow. I personally prefer the book. The book is much simpler and to the point but you get to glimpse the lives and insights of an ancient species of predators who have lived hidden in the outskirts of civilization, preying on humanity's cast-offs. That does sound good, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It really does. So lots of examples of adaptations not being as good as their source material. I wonder if we'll have a similar experience today. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And finally, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Uh, Hello, Surge. Hello, Serge. And he says, this is a great episode if you've always wanted to hear me live react to Conrad reading out one of my tweets. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, yeah, okay. This is full meta now, honestly. It's getting ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But, yes. Thank you, everyone, for either emailing us or commenting on our socials. We always love hearing from you. Mm. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We do, we do. Well, we are not alone, Dan. You'll be excited to hear. Yes. (laughs) Joining us today is an actor, independent filmmaker and open-air theatre director making his triumphant second return to the Ubiette. It's Lars Henriks. Hello, sir. Hey. hey. Welcome back. So excited to be here. So great to, to see you again. Hi. How have you been? What have you been up to? I have been great and I've been up to a lot shooting movies and miniseries and uh, directing open air theater and uh, having a baby like my, my, my girlfriend had the baby but I I was there, you were there. For that. <laughs> yeah you're, part, yeah. you're so, a, con- so a contributing factor I yes 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 <laughs> 62 hours of being awake and and all oh, of that, God. you know. I mean, wow. I mean, I, I think I deserve some respect for that. That was, of that was hard for me. It was it was very exhausting. <laughs> Nobody offered me a bed. Yeah. So so what didn't happen? Yeah. <laughs> it has been wow. an exciting year. It sounds. Are you it. still hailing from Hamburg? Yes. Yes. Uh, the, the the south of Hamburg. It's called Harburg, and I am I am right now. In the process of, of 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 setting up operations here, we have a we have a production office here, and ah. we 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 did open air theater here. So so I'm I'm uh, trying to promote Harburg everywhere. It's sh- sort of a shoddy area of Hamburg, okay. and nobody wants to live here. But actually, <laughs> dear international audiences of the movie Oubliette, Harburg is the greatest part of Hamburg. We're in in the beginning of stage two of gentrification. You know, stage one is it's a shitty part, and then. 
the beginning of stage two oh. is the artists come. Yeah. And by the artists, I mean ah. me. I I yes. came. So, Harburg, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> that's that's an up-and-coming area, I think, is, is what we call it. Exactly, exactly. It, it's, it's on the brink, mm. yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's still well, horrible, but I am here. So yes, <laughs> exciting times. <laughs> yeah. So, is there anything we should be looking out for that could be coming out soon? Yes, um, coming out soon. I mean, we shot a movie called COVID Metamorphoses, and that should be coming to Tubi sometime soon. And there's there's a lot coming out soon, but ah. I, I never can tell any dates because with with these streamers that happens kind of randomly. But just the other day, no, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my, my my first three embarrassing, independent, weird movies uh, bundled up as the Cthulhu trilogy dropped on DVD and Blu-ray, got a wide release in the US. Oh, wow. uh, they are on Tubi and and everywhere. Um, Why Hans Wagner hates the Starry Sky, Cordelia's Children, and Second Commando versus Cthulhu. I think they are fun in a way you will not be bored i i do a bad job of promoting them but they are actually um a, a brilliant masterpieces that everybody should watch on tubi my my cthulhu trilogy yes and then leon must die is uh, which 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 is a great science fiction masterpiece that i directed is on plex now you can watch it in the uk and in australia not in the us streaming you guys it's complicated but there's movies <laughs> i've made movies and i would love to see some reviews on letterboxd i i really get very happy when people review my movies oh great ah yeah i'll check wow. them out i, I love tubi I, I watch tubi all the time Tubi is the people streamer. It really is, is so great. I have I have such such an extensive <laughs> watch list. You know what I what I watched on Tubi? Lair of the White Worm. Oh. Ah, <laughs> very nice. <laughs> well, uh, with that in mind, perhaps you ought to head on over to the Oubliette. We've given you the uh, the uh, safety training, so you're you're now certified, and you're one of our guests who is able to go into the Oubliette. So uh, please do. Okay, I'm in some mansion's basement. Looks okay. quite nice, actually. Mm. If it wasn't for all these drawings of snakes everywhere. Did I ever tell you I'm deathly afraid of snakes? <laughs> horrible creatures, horrible. Oh, oh well, there's a, there's a sunbed over there. And what might this be? Huh. If I didn't know better, I'd assume it's a sacrificial altar, complete with what looks like quite a deep hole that leads into some... Cave? Wow. Dangerous. Where is that movie? Ah, <laughs> it seems to be stuck in that hole. Let me, let me just very quickly <laughs> shove my arm in there. Ow! What the? Something bit me. Good lord. Oh, come back. I got the movie. Coming back now. All right. Ow, me stuck ah. There you go. <laughs> so, the film that you have brought with you is... Lair of the White Worm. Mm. It's a British horror comedy from 1988. It was uh, written and directed by Ken Russell, and it's starring Amanda Donohoe, Peter Capaldi, Hugh Grant, and many other people. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And, uh, and based on a famous book, I believe. Yes, based on a book that is often uh, called the worst book of all times. <laughs> the Room of Books. That's what it says on the Wikipedia page, right in the introducing uh, paragraph. Wow. <laughs> Yes, this is uh, Bram Stoker, the author of modern vampire fiction. 
he he wrote some other books and apparently this one did not go so well uh so <laughs> that should make this very interesting so what is the synopsis of this movie lars sell it to us all right so Scottish archaeologist Angus Flint discovers the skeletonized head of a giant snake from Roman times in Derbyshire on the land of the sisters Eve and Mary, whose parents have mysteriously disappeared a year earlier. Dapper Lord James Dampton throws a party at which a folk band introduces us, the audience, to the local legend of the White Worm, which tells the story of Dampton's ancestors slaying a giant white snake in mythical times. This scene is obligatory since we are in kind of a folk horror film and those do tend to start with the coming horrors being laid out in song. There's mm. another local noble, mm. Lady Sylvia, who may or may not be, but definitely and unambiguously is connected to the snake mystery of Derbyshire. She may or may not even be the snake woman referenced in the German title of this movie, which translates to The Bite of the Snake Woman. Together, uh -huh. our Scooby gang of heroes made up of the young archaeologist, the slightly hapless but very handsome lord, and the two kind of useless sisters try to <laughs> uncover the secrets of the white worm, since it seems to be tied to the dis appearance of the sisters' parents. Not many good things happen to them going from here on out. <laughs> I tried to keep it short, didn't really manage to, and have not yet even <laughs> mentioned the nun-raping Roman snake cult central to the story or the snake vampires. It's a wild movie. <laughs> we we oh, have plenty yes. of time to delve into those. It sounds fantastic. Uh, let's, let's talk about it some more after the break. Yes. And we're back to talk about Layer of the White Worm, a film by Ken Russell based on a Bram Stoker novel. Lars, you chose this film for us after reading the book, a great masterpiece, no doubt. How does the film compare to the story in the book? So, believe it or not, the novel is a lot more convoluted. Right. Apparently, Stoker wasn't entirely lucid when he wrote it. He was in the, in the late stages of... Bright's disease. Mm. The book is about an Australian rich dude, Adam Salton or something, and he goes to visit his elderly relative Richard Salton in Lesser Hill, Derbyshire, England. And then there's two sisters also. They are called Lily and Mimi. And there's a local noble. He's called Edgar Caswell, but he's sort of the secondary antagonist. He tries to mesmerize one of the sisters into sleeping with him. And then there's Lady Arabella, not Sylvia, who sometimes behaves snake-like and under whose house a giant snake of legend lives. And then, and this is the truly horrible part of the novel, there's Ulonga. He's the black African servant of Caswell. And who he's in love with Lady Arabella. And let me tell you, Stoker is worse than Lovecraft. Like, I have never read this kind of hateful vial before. It's really disgusting the way he writes about this one black character. And it really uh, soured me on the whole book. Wow. But the book wouldn't be good even without that character. Like, it's just this chaos of eccentric noble characters who you can hardly keep track of. There is, like, everybody seems to be evil. The mystery never really gets spelled out. I just read in a book about Ken Russell films, which is called, uh, I think, Phallic Visions or something. So um, really, <laughs> like, spot on. Sounds right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> someone wrote the book was about a snake 
type vampires going around. That's not the case. Like the, anything supernatural is really only hinted at in, in the book. And that's for the worse. It's a horrible book that I do not <laughs> recommend to read. So had you seen the film adaptation before? I've seen the DVD in my local library and I've been meaning to watch this film adaptation because I, I'm very interested in Ken Russell since I, I was at the Derby Film Festival last year. Oh. Um, we, had a, we, had, we had a film being screened there and they showed Gothic. Oh, right. um, and the screenwriter of Gothic was in attendance. And Gothic, I think, is fantastic. I love the story that it's based on already, but I think it's, it's such a great movie. And ever since, I've been very interested in watching more Ken Russell. So this was very high on my watch list. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, this is not our first Ken Russell film that we've uh, discussed on the podcast. We did Altered States with uh, Lance Guest. We did, um, yeah. And I did see similarities, uh, especially in the hallucinatory dream sequences, which were kind of similar. Lots of weird green screen or blue screen effects. But yeah, Ken Russell is an interesting director for me. He does a lot of very liberal adaptations on historical figures, especially musical composers. Like he's done a lot of movies about Tchaikovsky and all sorts of romantic composers, uh, and but very liberal adaptations and i'm assuming a very liberal adaptation of bram stoker in this film definitely i think his career was pretty much in the toilet before gothic came out for some reason he was just not taken seriously <laughs> by uh the, the british film industry can't imagine why so he did gothic it did very well particularly on video and then he was approached much like bernard rose who we talked to about paper house by vestron mm -hmm. paper house of course came out in 88 the same year and this whole secondary market of rental video had opened up opportunities for directors. So he got a three-picture deal with Vestron, and he was told that his first one had to be a horror film. So, yeah, he went to Bram Stoker and thought, yeah, this will do, mm -hmm. and just had fun. I saw an interview with Amanda Donahoe where she read the script and she said to Ken Russell, is this a comedy? And he said, yes, of course, it bloody is love. So yeah. it's not to be taken seriously because I watched the film and I was thinking, so is this on purpose or not? I could not figure out the tone for a while. Yeah, there are definitely scenes that are, I mean, it's undeniable that it's comedy, especially that scene with the policeman when he's trying to call for backup. <laughs> definitely comedic. But yeah, I think watching it, you really don't get it. Like there is some really ridiculous, serious, like quite disturbing imagery at the same time. <laughs> you know, Romans raping nuns with a big snake worm creature wrapped around Jesus. It's... <laughs> Yeah, it's not it's not for the faint-hearted. No. I was kind of waiting when it started because I knew it was a comedy. People were talking about how it's very funny and I was waiting for it to become funny because I think it it's starting kind of slowly. Like okay, there's a party that has a fun tone, but I was waiting for the jokes to start until I kind of understood that there weren't going to be like of course when Lady Sylvia talks to people then she's very funny and she has these one-liners and there's mm. there's jokes, but it's more like this tone of silliness 
that I think makes the humor of the whole film. It's very dry. It doesn't really tell you that it's a comedy. It just does something incredibly silly and lets you figure out that that's on purpose. Mm. Like it could as well be like a so bad it's good film in a way. Yeah. I mean, my first reaction watching the film is every scene I had a question, like, why is that there? What just happened? Like, why were they even <laughs> digging in the front lawn? Like, why? There are so many things. Like, the food spread at the party is so strange. Like, there's, like, octopus and mussels and fish heads. And, like, why is that there? It just, every scene had me questioning the choices made. But in a way, that's the perfect translation of the feeling of reading the book right. to, to the screen. <laughs> because in the book, you're constantly questioning, why did you write that? <laughs> so uh, in a way, it's very, very accurate. Right. Some of the feeling of the it's so bad, it's good, it comes from the unevenness in the cast. You have scenes where Amanda Donahoe as this sort of femme fatale snake acolyte or goddess, I'm not quite sure what she is. Mm. And Hugh Grant, the local Lord dressed in an RAF uniform for no justifiable reason (laughs) (laughs) are doing basically a Noel Coward play in one scene, which because they're both talented actors and they were in on the joke, it's funny. It's very, very funny. Mm. But on the other hand, you've got the two sisters played by Sammy Davis and Catherine Oxenberg who is dubbed right. for some reason. Okay, I didn't realise that. The acting is just leaden and crap. Super wooden, yeah. 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 So I found it very difficult to get a handle on just how much of it was meant to be funny and how much of it was just incompetent. Yeah, but I, I found that in, in the way uh, it was written as well. The characters, I didn't know who we were following. There were four characters, and at one point... Peter Capaldi's character is like the lead character, but then it focuses on Hugh Grant. But then the third act, Hugh Grant's not even part of the third act. He's just off at the cave smoking out the creature, which didn't really make any sense yes. because the creature was part of the ritual anyway. So what was he doing? Yes. <laughs> like he's not even in the final scene. All the Hugh Grant stuff in the third act that was completely unnecessary right yeah i thought they were going to like fight the snake i don't know from behind while they were fighting the head like the cave would lead to the other cave but it didn't no they were just standing there (laughs) (laughs) heroically so oh we're in the cave yeah wow i did ask mr grant if he would like to contribute to this episode uh he quote unquote politely declined (laughs) yes He has not been complimentary about it in interviews since it was released, so I'm not sure he's particularly proud of it. Yeah, he has said at some point that that Russell was drunk while directing most of the time, right? Oh. I mean, that checks out if you watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. So watching the behind the scenes, apparently they would start out every day at 10am with a glass of champagne. Yeah. So everyone would have a glass of champagne and that's how they started filming. Um, And yeah, he sounds like a maniac directing as well, just shouting at people, getting angry at everyone. Just that doesn't sound like fun. No. And particularly getting angry at people for not wanting to be naked in his movies. I think there are two people that refuse to get naked. Uh, One of them is the Boy Scout, Chris Pitt, and also Catherine Oxenberg, who plays Eve, one of the sisters. She is, it's kind of weird. She's part of the royal family, interestingly enough. She's the daughter 
of Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia, which no longer exists. Right. She has twice played Princess Diana in TV movies. Uh-huh. Her accent is sort of mid-Atlantic with a hint of Australia in there. It's really bizarre. Okay. So no wonder they dubbed her. Right. But yeah, she's royalty. So although she will appear in Ken Russell's movie where Amanda Donahoe is topless licking a phallus covered with blood, yes. she wouldn't take her clothes off herself. She asked for silken underwear from Harrods and she got cotton underwear from Marks and Spencers yep. uh, to dangle over the pit <laughs> yes. as she's being sacrificed to the worm in the climax of the movie. And uh, yeah, and Ken Russell was screaming at her about that. I mean, equal opportunities. He wasn't just harassing women. I think he was awful to everybody. Right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but they all seemed to take it in good spirits and thought it was funny, mostly. Yeah. I, I saw the, the footage of one of the effects guys and he said, like, if you stood up for yourself, you were fine. If, if you let him walk all over you, yeah, you had a, a pretty terrible time. But, yeah. <laughs> Still sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we talk about the worm? It is based on a, a legend, right? Yes, an actual one, right? Yes, instead of Dampton, it's the Lampton worm from County Durham in the northeast of England. And the folk song that you hear from that Dexie's Midnight Runners tribute band during the party at the beginning, that's an actual folk song from 1867. Yeah. And in the legend, was it a pagan god or was it just a creature that lived down the road in the river or something. I think it's just a monster, like the Loch Ness Monster. I'd, I think the whole Christianity versus paganism thing is Ken Russell's edition. Right. Okay. Of course, though. I feel like a lot of his stuff does have a lot of religious imagery, so it's not unusual. Yeah, like the devils, right? Yeah. I think I read that the Roman stuff he added because in the region where he grew up or something, uh, stuff like that was excavated. I think there were like crosses found with snakes around them. Oh. Okay. I mean, the right. novel does have the folk horror vibe. All the Roman stuff is only in the movie. Yeah. And it's only in the um, hallucination scenes as well. It's, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. I, I think there was a lot of... The bare bones of this movie could have been a really good movie. It has a really good premise and just the idea of an ancient creature, almost Lovecraftian, yeah, um, with the Dione and this worm slash snake. I, I don't know why they, they went for the more worm look. It's a shame that it's so unfocused in a way. Like, if you would follow the Peter Capaldi character, the, the archaeologist, you would have that story, right? Yeah. But then yeah. Ken Russell and... Stoker as well, seems to be more interested in the nobles. Mm. Why? Uh, and their opulent houses and the way they behave. And then he gets very interested in, in, in Lady Sylvia, which, of course, she's fascinating. I love her snake dance. It's perfect. <laughs> the snake dance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the focus on the aristocracy is Ken Russell's way of doing a bit of a dig at the British class system. And this being 1988, this is during Thatcherism, right. when there was a lot of social unrest and dissatisfaction with how the ruling classes were treating the working classes. Mm. particularly the miners. So I think Lady Sylvia Marsh in her fetish wear pushing a Boy Scout underneath the waters of her jacuzzi to drown is some sort of criticism of Thatcherism in some way. Of course. Right. And then the whole monster aspect, which is, I think, the least endearing part. Yeah. I wish they would have just made it a more straightforward folk horror thing. Yeah, just focusing on sort of one character rather than like flipping between all these different characters. I did like Lady Sylvia and just having 
having that strong female completely entrancing everyone as well, like almost like mind control over everyone. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the snake dance. Uh, but out of place, like what? Come on! <laughs> <laughs> that was an Oscar-worthy moment. <laughs> it's a moment. Um, yeah, dear listener, if you haven't seen the movie, there is a scene where Lord Dampton, played by Hugh Grant, lays a trap for Lady Sylvia by <laughs> rifling through his dad's old 78 vinyls and he finds... Um, the snake-charming music, yeah. Yeah, snake-charming music. And he puts it on his record player, puts the speakers on the roof of his stately home and his next door neighbour, snake acolyte Lady Sylvia, is so entranced that she just becomes mesmerised and starts sauntering over there. <laughs> it's pretty funny how it starts as well because she's literally, I guess, sleeping in a, <laughs> a basket that you would, <laughs> in a you would find like a, a cobra <laughs> or something. <laughs> she pops out of this wicker basket. Ridiculous. The whole idea is so brilliant. Like, like okay, I, I've got this recording from Istanbul. <laughs> I, I'm sure it draws snakes <laughs> because that's what they do, these Turks, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, not on the A side, of course, though, because the A side has belly dancing music on it. And <laughs> Lord Dampton's trusty manservant, Peters, has to say, try the B side, sir. <laughs> I did check, actually, the maximum running time of a 10 inch 78 record is only three minutes. Right. So presumably Lord Dampton was having to put the needle back at the beginning over and over again because every time it stops, she comes to her senses and bolts back home. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But I think that part is also very Bram Stoker-esque because if you've read Dracula, I think one of the interesting uh, parts of that is that they are fighting this ancient evil by then modern means. Like, oh. for example, it's in, the, the novel is composed of all these letters and uh, diaries and one of the characters records his stuff on a device that magically records voices. Ah, so right. uh, very modern. And then all the stuff they do about trains and all of that, like like they are uh, using everything the modern world holds for them to fight this ancient evil. And in a way, I mean, this scene is similar to that in spirit because he's not like <laughs> like Peter Capaldi later making the music himself with traditional means, but he's using technology. Bagpipes, yes. <laughs> and bless him, Peter Capaldi gets dressed up in a kilt for it because clearly you cannot play the bagpipes without no. wearing Where a kilt. Where did he even get that kilt? Like from one scene to another, he had this whole outfit. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that it worked. <laughs> it does, yeah. And it must be the only time in recording recorded history when someone has been pleased to hear the strains of the bagpipes striking <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I also love the fact that Peter Capaldi's sporran, which obviously he has with his kilt get-up, seems to be like Mary Poppins' bag, because during the course of the third act, he pulls a mongoose oh, out yes, of there, right. a hand grenade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't put a hand grenade in a small pouch in front of my crotch with a right. live mongoose, personally, but <laughs> yeah. knock yourself out. I was so confused about the mongoose because he found this stuffed mongoose in one scene when he entered the mansion. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. And yes, then yes. later, yeah, he had that live mongoose and I, for, for, for a second I thought, like, did he bring that 
stuffed mongoose back to life but no of course the not. stuffed one right <laughs> possibly i would put nothing past this movie to be honest yeah yeah i mean i don't know how he thought the mongoose was gonna work though i mean it was so tiny compared to that that huge snake but that's from the novel too the guy has has a mongoose and then it gets killed by lady sylvia and then he has more oh, what do you okay. say mongoose <laughs> mongooses <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever Mon seen guy? many mongies die in the novel. <laughs> right, and <laughs> it is very British. The movie as well, like oh yeah. I mean, you always comment, Conrad, on on how they just don't make it look nice. You know, in American movies, like houses look pristine and just like they're out of a catalog. The kitchen in this movie looked pretty grubby. It's shit 80s Britain, yeah. Is this a common trait in German horror films, Lars, that everything looks unglamorous? In, in, in German what? What films? What? <laughs> they never happen, of course. No, <laughs> they actually don't. Brits are always talking about the video nasty era and how that was, I mean, traumatizing censorship. Cry babies. <laughs> we had that up until the late 2000s and way worse. Like people went to prison for owning Evil Dead. Oh, wow. This was pre-internet in the early 90s. You couldn't really get the films at all. But people did read the magazines and they saw the pictures. Mm. So they started making their own splatter films, but they were amateurs and they were proudly proclaiming that and they were calling themselves the amateur splatter scene. And from this came people like Olaf Ittenbach, who later on made splatter effects for Uwe Boll films. Right. So he had some career. Okay. <laughs> and they made films like Premutors, uh, The Angel of Death, I think that was the biggest one. It's brain dead levels of gore, but... It's also pretty brain dead, <laughs> but that's it. Like those are amateur films that if you're into watching home movies and gore uh, on, on home movies, then you can see that. But you, you can't really make a professional film in Germany without the approval of the federal funding board. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, you will not get in uh, into festivals. You will not get into theaters because all of these places are also funded by that. And the funding boards just don't do horror at all. Like not even science fiction, not even fantasy. I had a science fiction script a couple of years back and these places actually wrote back to me and said we're not going to read that because it's science fiction oh. we, we don't do genre wow. so, no we don't but germany always looks shit in movies is the short answer <laughs> <laughs> okay we just don't have horror movies well another thing i mean this does look like a cheap production i think the budget is two million dollars reportedly it only reaped back 1.2 million in the box office it debuted in 18th place on the 21st of October 1988 behind the likes of Halloween 4, which was number one. Wow. But I think it was probably a video rental cash cow. Some aspects of the production look really cheap. Like the thing I was really disappointed with were the visions yeah. because it seems to have been shot and composited in video, which means the color is really compressed and overblown. The chroma key instead of matting. The chroma key is terrible. It's pixelated and they had to put Amanda Donahoe because she's wearing blue body paint in her high priestess get up at the end of the movie. Obviously, they couldn't put her on blue screen, so they put her on red screen. But that meant that when she opened her mouth, everything inside her mouth yeah. disappeared. And <laughs> it reminded me of Wolfen, actually, which we just did, which is that all of these vision scenes just look 
awful. Yeah. It looks like a banned 80s pop video by Frankie <laughs> Goes to Hollywood or something. It looks really terrible. Yeah, like really terrible. Like TikTok filter terrible. Worse like a, than that. <laughs> something that you can just slap on. Yeah. TikTok filters look a lot better. It looks like what uh, me and my friends would do in the forest when we were 13 with like mini DV camcorders. Right. You know? yeah, right. And then afterwards you have Movie Maker and there's some blue screen effect there and then you you just play around and then you get that yeah so i loved it, it made me feel nostalgic i thought <laughs> oh ken <laughs> i did the same thing yeah 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 <laughs> All the visual artists on the crew for this movie were all really young, apparently. Little 18-year-olds just running around, just figuring things out. So, yeah, I guess they had fun. Didn't look great. Mm. I mean, even the worm itself. I mean, the final scene with it big looked pretty good. But the one around the cross, oh, it looked like a puppet. You could see like wrinkles when it bent. And yeah. that looked like a worm, not like a snake. Like in the end, that was a snake. But that one around the cross, that was like a tapeworm that came straight out of a cat. Yeah, <laughs> not good and not scary at all. And I think partly because it was so brightly lit like there's no hiding behind anything yeah like even in the third act with the policeman becoming a snake vampire like why is it daytime this is not the scary if it's broad daytime and he's just running around hissing but it didn't really try to be scary did it like i mean look at the guy <laughs> yeah i know yeah the actor paul brooke is probably best known for playing the rancor keeper in return of the jedi and he has a lazy eye bless him so when they put the snake contact lenses in one of them is drifting off in a different direction and he's swaying backwards and forwards being charmed by peter capaldi in a kilt yeah with bagpipes <laughs> it's ridiculous it's, it's ridiculous it's crazy it's very good it's so funny it's very funny i mean the big snake at the end i thought was good because it's entirely practical so when you have the traditional shots of you know looking down past the heroine hanging over the sacrificial pit it's all there. Practically, it's actually there. There's no matting involved. It's sort of a false perspective trick. And then they had mm. three different sizes of puppet. I think they had basically like a sock puppet for when it was far <laughs> away. And then yeah. a slightly bigger one about the size of the one that's on the cross for when it's getting closer. And then something that was essentially the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, I think, at the end. That's <laughs> sort of yeah. not particularly articulated. But I mean, it was impressive because it was full size and right there. So... It ages pretty well compared to something like stop motion that they could have done. Yeah, yeah. And and also apparently no moving parts either. It's literally just jaws that open and close with two guys standing inside just swaying, swaying backwards and forwards yeah. <laughs> to, to open its jaws. It was, it was pretty impressive. Yeah. But um, some of the other, like the body paint on Amanda Donahoe, it looks like body paint didn't sort of have any texture to it um and and the fact that she's like topless all the time like what why is she topless all the time i don't know it, it felt very exploitation i was surprised to learn pretty recently that ken russell actually was not gay right since i've watched gothic and and uh, i've read about ken russell and i've i've, I've seen parts of mala and some, uh, there was never a question in my mind i thought ken russell is one of the great gay filmmakers mm -hmm. clearly it's so camp and uh, so i don't know phallic 
everything he does. Yeah. And I think in the hands of another director, that would have potentially felt a lot more exploitative. Mm, sure. So yeah, learning that he, he actually wanted the actress who got sacrificed to be naked changes that because that too, I thought, oh, wow, wow. In, in another movie, she would have been completely naked. so naked yeah, now yeah. and that would have been the spectacle. But in a way, Lady Sylvia is so powerful all the time, mm. you know? I don't know. To me, it didn't really register that way. I thought someone else could have done this in a way sleazier fashion. To me, it just felt like another outfit of hers. Yeah, I think the whole full body paint sort of disguised it yeah. more, even though it was obvious she was naked, but she was blue. But you are right. She was always in uh, a position of power. She wasn't the victim. She wasn't getting raped or anything. So in that respect, yeah, definitely not exploitation. Even the Roman nun rape scene, Usually I hate that kind of stuff. But in a way, it was so much like John Waters would have done it. Right. Like the rape scene in Pink Flamingos. It reminded me of that. It was so over the top and so silly. Yeah, I think it's with the weird snake in the background and, and the fact that, you know, things are like going towards the camera and crazy visions. And you've got Amanda Donahoe just like with her fangs out, just hissing all the time. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a like, what, what the fuck's going on? John Waters type yeah. ridiculousness. Yeah, I think there was one shot that I thought just epitomised Ken Russell, which is there's a shot of Amanda Donahoe at the end of the movie advancing towards poor Eve, who's strung up over the lair of the white worm. And she has this enormous ivory dildo strapped onto <laughs> yeah. her. Yes. And she is advancing towards this poor girl and the camera slowly pulls away yeah. between Eve's legs to reveal her quivering loins. Yes. And I just thought it's artful. It's very well staged. It's beautifully done. It's completely ridiculous. And it just makes the sexuality of it look ridiculous. Mm. So I don't feel like it's exploitative. I feel like it's taking the piss of us possibly being offended by it almost yeah yeah he seems to be operating at a slightly meta level when he's putting this stuff on screen it's like if you're shocked and appalled by this you're missing the fact that i'm making fun of you for yeah, having yeah, that reaction yeah. <laughs> yeah similar in the the boy scout scene where does she bite his penis yes is that what she does is that what happens <laughs> <laughs> I just love the fact this aristocratic lady picks up a Boy Scout by the side of the road and the next time we see them, she's managed to get him out of those wet clothes and he's relaxing by the fire and she is in a diaphanous nightgown, a black thong and thigh-high PVC boots. Yeah. She thinks that's an appropriate outfit to entertain a Boy Scout. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And that's all somehow a metaphor for the workers' plight in Britain, yeah. you say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, apparently. of course it is. <laughs> That's Margaret Thatcher there. Interesting. <laughs> we had complicated feelings about Margaret <laughs> yeah, Thatcher. <laughs> yeah, apparently, apparently. I did really like her character. She did really remind me of other female villains. So like Species, Queen of the Damned, or um, Maleficent. Sort of woman in power. Hmm. It's quite intriguing to me. I mean, it touched on a lot more sexuality in this movie and sort of, I guess, dominatrix-type characters. But that was very prevalent in the 80s as well with Hellraiser, so... Yeah, she reminded me a lot of Grace Jones's character in Vamp, yeah, which we were introduced to on this podcast. Yes. 
it was somehow never in question if she really is the villain. If you could have played this as a mystery, but she was unambiguously evil from the beginning. She was like a Disney villain. Yeah. I did want to ask, though, like, how did they come to the conclusion that she was the evil one? Because you watch it again, and they jump to that conclusion really quickly, and I don't know how. <laughs> did they assume she was evil before she came out of the mansion for the snake dance? Because I thought that was somehow how they figured it out. Because he visited her and... It was fine. Didn't register a thing. Nothing happened, right? Yes, yeah. and then... Shortly after that, he did the whole let's charm the snake. And I thought that probably then they thought, oh, look, she, but, but, but there wasn't there wasn't a scene like that, right? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. No. The no. only thing I could figure out is when uh, I think Eve is walking home from the cave, she has to go through that property and she went missing. So they assumed, well, of course, Lady Sylvia kidnapped her because... I mean, she behaves weird. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. She's a weirdo. She behaves like a snake. Yeah. yeah, but I don't think any of those characters saw that, though. You, you've got the Boy Scout and, and the policeman that saw that, but they didn't tell anyone else. No, you're right. So, that is a bit of a plot hole. I don't know. Mm. Because even Hugh Grant's character, Lord Dampton, after Eve's mother turns up and he chops her in half with a broadsword with such force that he goes flying into his drum kit. <laughs> yeah, just... why does he have a drum kit? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if you've ever wanted to see Hugh Grant wield a broadsword, this is your movie. But after... After that, he on the phone to Angus when he's saying, you know, yeah, of course I'm going to be all right. Shut up. Don't worry about it. He actually says, yeah, chopped her in half. It wasn't the one we were thinking it was going to be. So <laughs> yes. they did think it was going to be her for some reason, but it's not clear why, which is odd because there are so many scenes of exposition in the movie. Ken Russell even went back to film more scenes to make things clearer. Okay. But it makes it so talky and it stops it dead. Like there's a scene at the end of the movie where Lord Dampton and Angus are explaining what happened in the climax to each other. Yeah, well... And you think, I don't need to hear this. Why are you doing this? Just end the movie. Yeah. I mean, the end is ridiculous as well. So he didn't get the snake venom serum. No. He got some arthritis relief serum. <laughs> So And the way in which she told him too, like that was very relatable. <laughs> if you've ever encountered like in Germany service people who made a mistake right. uh, and, and then they tell you they make a mistake, <laughs> they always do it in a way that makes it feel like it's your fault. Like, yeah, no, of course, you did, we, we sent you the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved that. I was so happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> like so needlessly complicated. He could have just discovered the bite in his leg in the car in the end. They wouldn't have needed to do the whole whole antidote bit no yeah. not at all yeah just so they can have a bite pun in the car with him and hugh grant should we stop for a bite <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yes and also the second peter capaldi learned that it wasn't the correct antidote he turned evil yes it wasn't from the bite it wasn't from anything he learned oh i'm a snake vampire now okay all right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm good with that just gets into it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are, so, again, so many questions. Like, when, when he saves Eve from Lady Sylvia and she's somehow fallen down and, and grabbed hold of her, is the easiest thing to just sever her hand? That's the yes. easiest thing to get out of that situation? <laughs> With a really blunt knife as well, it seems. like I, <laughs> it, it took so really long. Strange. But that was really effective. <laughs> I was squirming. Yeah. It was so horrible to watch that. <laughs> That's awful. Because, because, yes, it was such a blunt knife and it took so long. That was somehow very relatable. It was, ah, really bad. <laughs> yeah. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now it's time for random trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating nugget of trivia did you find in the lair of the white worm today? Well, actually, uh, this is not the first time that this uh, story of the white worm was possibly going to be adapted to film. So, due to the success of the 1973 folk horror, The Wicker Man, the original film, um, they wanted to do a, a, a trilogy. Um, and so there was one idea that they had um, in 1989, screenwriter Anthony Schaefer for The Wicked Man wrote a 30-page script treatment sequel called The Lonesome Lampton Worm. Uh, and in the sequel, the protagonist, uh-huh. protagonist was saved at the very last minute, so he didn't burn up. And spoilers here, he didn't burn up in the big effigy. Uh, and he proceeds to try to bring the islanders to justice, but instead begins a battle against the old gods, uh, and ending climactically as he comes face to face with the Lampton Worm, a fire breathing dragon, uh, before he plummets Ooh. to his death, tied to two large eagles. But yes. <laughs> Didn't get, get off the ground, never got made, um, but apparently the script treatment and the accompanying illustrations were published in uh, Alan Brown's 2001 behind-the-scenes book, Inside the Wicker Man. So this could have been a... Oh. I have that. Do you? Wow. Well, apparently it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a look right after this. That's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. so good to know. It could have been another movie, but... Uh, that became this movie. There you go. And that's our trivia. Yes. Shall we talk briefly about the score? It's very synthy. Uh, composer I've never heard of, Stan, Stanilas Struvich. Yes. Russian composer. It didn't even register for me, like except for the snake dance. No. It felt very TV movie to me. What do you think, Conrad? Yeah, it's. I mean, you're, you're not going to be surprised by my comments on this. It's a typical glossy, shimmery pad synth score from the late 80s, early 90s. I, I hated it with a passion. The Russian composer, Stanislav Sorowitz. I can't pronounce um, There's too many consonants. He also worked on um, a few other films around that time. Biggles, Adventures Through Time oh, yes. in 86. Okay. And also Robin Hardy's follow-up to The Wicker Man, The Fantasist, in 86. Right. But after that, he seems to be just involved in Russian TV. Yeah. But how does this happen? Ken Russell, who became famous partly for making films about Tchaikovsky and Mahler, Mm. how does he have such a nothing score? I guess budget. I think it's just budget. What was surprising in the score and, and really cheesy the saxophone that pops up whenever like Sylvia's on screen. Oh yeah. Which is sexy, I guess. Saxophone. <laughs> it's the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Careless whisper, break out the saxophone for the sex scenes. <laughs> but the, the weirdest part uh, in terms of music, I guess it's diegetic, uh, was the harmonica that the boy scout just whips out for the, yes! for the sexy time. Like, and she says that kind of music freaks me out. It's foreshadowing for later. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yes. Yeah. I mean, very out of place. I don't know what was going on there. And the, the best score uh, moment in the movie, I guess, is the dream sequence on the plane. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Honestly, 
I'm sorry, but yeah, let me try and describe this for anybody listening who has not seen the film and has no intention to. So <laughs> Lord Dampton, Hugh Grant has a dream halfway through the movie. Yes. Ken Russell says this is key and anybody who mocks him has not understood the dream sequence. Yeah. Right. Okay. So Lord Dampton walks into the cave in the painting on his wall and mounts a ladder to board a serpentine jet. It looks like a Concorde with its uh, dipped nose cone. Mm. Lady Marsh is there as a stewardess trying to distract him with booze. The sisters, Mary and Eve, are also stewardesses, and they're trying to show him a newspaper where there's a crossword puzzle where the solution reveals a snake. But it's not a crossword puzzle, though. It looks like a crossword puzzle, but it's like a join the dots. Yeah, join the dots for the snake, yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And the other sister is doing the safety demonstration. So the sisters are trying to tell him... That lady's the snake god lady. Mm. The girl's mm-hmm. parents are there, tied up and catatonic, and uh, Lady Marsh is sort of feeding them venom to keep them catatonic. Mm. Eve tries to intervene, and they end up in this feeble, girly wrestling match, revealing their stockings on the floor of the plane. Yeah. And while this is happening, the red pen that Hugh Grant was using to do his join-the-dot <laughs> snake, he's slowly raising it up. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it's a metaphor there. Yes. <laughs> So subtle. <laughs> it's very obvious symbolism. I mean, there's nothing particularly difficult about this. It's Freudian. It, <laughs> this is unnecessary titillation. Very intellectual. But honestly, I just thought, oh, Ken. I know. Really? <laughs> I know. And and it ends as well with, I guess, like Sylvia on one side and, and Eve on the other side doing some sort of weird burlesque dance with just one leg. Yes. <laughs> The whole scene did not need to be there. But you wouldn't have seen any of this in any other movie. No. I mean, it doesn't really fit into this movie either. No, that's very true. It does, A lot of it does feel like Ken Russell got two million and he just thought, let's have fun. I've been told I've got to do a horror movie for mm. the video market. So let's just have stewardesses rolling around on the floor. Why not? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Hey, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite sacrilegiously hallucinatory parts of the film in a number of body part severing categories. Best quote. Lady Sylvia is, is in the car with the child with the boy scout <laughs> and uh, he he says um I, i'm not really into it banging and she says are you into any sort of banging which <laughs> most people repeat as a funny quote but i think it's it gets more funny when he then replies i'm not bad on a mouth organ <laughs> which um like okay yeah so much of it, though, I just thought, this is on purpose, isn't it? Surely it must be on of purpose. Of yeah. <laughs> So, for example, my favourite one is after, this is Hugh Grant as Lord Dampton. I mean, every line he delivers is wonderful. But after he, he goes to visit the sister's house, guest house, where Angus is staying, and he's, you know, done his excavation in the, in the garden... And, uh, yeah, Hugh just walks into the kitchen and says, Oh, I love Mr. Flint's hole. It's rather fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) This is deliberate, Hugh. This is so deliberate. (laughs) 
Best hair or costume? Okay, so there are many of Lady Sylvia's outfits that I think Every qualify single one. here. Yeah. Her very first outfit is, I think, the, the first thing that needs to be mentioned. She looks a bit like a uh, like an eccentric nun, mm. but I do think that, and this is the image this this film gets promoted with a lot. Her very last outfit, the the the, the hat uh, stuff she has, and the the, the contact lenses, the, the the teeth, the blue skin. Mm. Uh, that that's I guess the most iconic thing in this movie because because it's it's everywhere. If you if you Google yeah, Lair of yeah. the White Worm, that's the image. Yeah. It's memorable. Yeah, definitely. I've never seen anything like it for sure. Yeah, that 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 first <laughs> for reasons that first outfit that you mentioned. Um, She's also wearing a three-pointed hat. Like, I did Yeah, a tricorn yes, hat. didn't even buy those. Yeah, she looks like... A- <laughs> it's like, like Napoleonic or something. Yeah, it's a lair of the white highway woman. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> That's what I wrote down as well, because she's wearing this grey power suit heels and these shimmery, silvery stockings. She's a vision. Mm. Most, Most 80s moment. So, so I'm assuming this is a very 80s thing because it's in this 80s movie, but I have to say here in Germany, we're, we're, we're always sort of 20 years behind the rest of the world. For me, it's a very 2000s moment. <laughs> right. It's the sunbed. In one scene, oh, Lady Sylvia right. randomly, without any kind of reason, and it, it, it never gets addressed. It has, It's just there for pure aesthetics she's in a sunbed i do love that she swaps the usual vampire's coffin for a sunbed yes (laughs) like she has her basket which is already uh, a stand-in for the vampire's (laughs) coffin but no then she also has a sunbed yes it's perfect isn't it for me the most 80s thing in this movie was the ceramic white hands clasping a glass orb lamp that's in Hugh Grant's bedroom. It's the most hideous bit of Taki's interior decor. Right. I hope everybody had them. Really? <laughs> they're, okay. they're, they're, they are hideous, <laughs> hideous things, and they now go for over a hundred pounds on Etsy wow. now. So, okay. go figure. <laughs> but I have no idea why Lord Dampton has such a cheap bit of eighties tat in wow. his bedroom. Okay. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Favorite scene. I have three. Three. Oh, okay. Wow. I have said this again and again, but Lady Sylvia Snake Dance <laughs> yeah. is yeah. for the ages. Um, <laughs> then it's not a scene, it's a shot, but it's so random and so jarring and kind of makes the movie for me is um, her spitting on Jesus. Oh, yes. <laughs> She's full on snake vampire and spitting stuff yeah. at the cross. I love that. <laughs> And also following that is, uh, we, we, we've talked about that before, when one of the sisters touches that, she has that vision. So we have torn that vision apart because it's bad. Mm. Yes. It's bad. <laughs> like, objectively, it's not well made. Still. <laughs> that's interesting. There, there, there must be more of that. And I was sad there wasn't. Like, the, when the second dream scene came that you, you described, Conrad... I, I was disappointed. Like he went into that cave, and I thought, "Oh, another dream scene." And then there was just Freudian plane. That was that was very disappointing. I liked the first vision. That was fantastic, and I wanted more of that. So that was that was <laughs> those those were my three favorite moments. Okay, well, my favorite scene. Uh, everyone will probably be uh, will disagree, but I I really loved the plane scene because of how stupid it was. <laughs> it was just so. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't believe what I was watching. It was unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Most cliche moment. 
the cliche that I would point out would be uh, that snakes make rattle sounds uh, in movies, even if they aren't rattlesnakes. Like, it's clearly not a rattlesnake, but it did rattle when it appeared for no reason i mean it's just a it's just a movie standard that snakes have to make either a hissing sound or rattle sound Mm -hmm. very true um mine was a simple one which is just virgin sacrifices bound and gagged in an underground lair waiting for a man to come and rescue (laughs) them yeah yeah best special effect the big snake for me the, in yeah, the end. Big, yeah. I just just unironically, I liked I liked that best from all, I like the, the the special effects weren't great, most of them, and and the big snake isn't perfect, but I think I liked it. I I think that that looked cool. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just it just the, the immense size of it as well. It looks huge, and it was huge. Yeah, it looks yeah. huge. Um, my my favorite special effect was uh, when Hugh Grant cuts the woman in half. So she's on the floor, yeah, in two halves, just yeah, writhing around. It is very disturbing. Yeah, but they don't address it afterwards. She's still there, I guess, still on his floor. Yeah, presumably. <laughs> yeah, the chambermaid must. You know, first of all, she wakes up and finds that her bedroom is locked for no apparent reason, and then when she finally gets out, she finds that writhing on the floor. That's not a great day in Dampton Hall, is no. it? No, <laughs> no, not at all. That never happened in Downton Abbey. <laughs> Favourite sound effect. I just wanted to point out the drum kit because it was it was there for some reason. And so I guess they had to utilise it sound-wise. So when he falls over, you, you've got the drum kit bashing away, cymbals crashing. and But like, I don't know why it was there, though. Why, why, why does he... Does he just, like you know play drums in his spare time because he's so rich it just does yeah i don't know yeah <laughs> he has interests yeah he, does <laughs> he has stuff. hobbies <laughs> broad swords and drumming <laughs> <laughs> that's what he does yeah okay okay uh for me i just love the fact that every time somebody has a vision it begins with a gunshot i have oh, no right. idea oh, wow, yes. i didn't even realize <laughs> <laughs> Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most funniest moment. Bagpipe scene for me. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe because by that point the tone of the movie had clicked with me because that took mm. a while until until I, I really vibe with the kind of humor it presented. Yeah. But but by 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 then I was on board and and that scene mm. I I don't know I laughed a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for me, it's another scene that we've talked about before. It's Lady Marsh emerging from enormous wicker basket <laughs> and gyrating her head and slowly <laughs> sauntering in a snake-like way towards yeah. Dampton Manor. <laughs> I just thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but kudos for Amanda Donahoe. She fully commits she does. to it. It's just, yes. She really does. Such a great performance. So for me, I've already said it, the aeroplane scene again. So it's your favourite scene and oh, the funny. It's so funny. It's just, <laughs> I mean, also, I, I guess the, the strap-on reveal for me was so oh, shocking. Yes. It was funny. If the rumours are to be believed, uh, the royals do love a bit of pegging. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> and that's our move, please. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Scott Drebbit from Daily Dead and the Corpse Club. You're listening to Movie Oubliette. 
Final verdict. Should Ken Russell's Lair of the White Worm be released from its cavernous lair to be worshipped by all, or should its blasphemous body be severed and plummet back down into the oubliette prison, never to be seen again? Lars, Lair of the White Worm. You, you are our expert since you've read the book. What, what's your final verdict on the film? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think I think the film should be released and the book should take its place in the Oubliette. <laughs> yes. I think this movie, uh, not only does this movie boast a star-studded cast complete with Oscar winners Peter Capaldi and Amanda Donahoe. I read they were Oscar winners. I am I'm amazed at that. As well as an early performance of the man, the myth, the legend, Hugh Grant, uh-huh. which on its own makes this worth a watch. <laughs> It's also overflowing with mind-boggling craziness that needs to be seen to be believed. Lair of the White Worm is strangely absent from all the best-of lists appearing over the past few years chronicling the trendy folk horror genre. Despite it certainly being a classic among that fascinating subset of films, in Lair of the White Worm we see a unique filmmaker being unapologetically and allegedly drunkenly, himself, (laughs) logic and conventions be damned, which is always a sight to behold. If you are into culty, weird movies, even a little bit, you shouldn't miss out on this hilarity. Yeah, yeah. I think. For me, it checks so many boxes that this is a terrible film. Like there are like some terrible (laughs) acting, terrible (laughs) special effects. Uh, the writing's not great. Uh, I mean, not great source material either. And the music's not great. But was I entertained? I was <laughs> thoroughly entertained in every scene. Like, I, watching it a second time, I liked it even more. Like, I got the, the, the <laughs> comedic aspect. It was, yeah, I don't know. I, it's one of those rare movies where it's like, I should be... I should be hating this movie, but I did. I loved it. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it's a bizarre thing because, um, as you say, it just the, there are so many things to criticize. Not least the fact that it's uneven. I mean, it's not so bad. It's good because it's actually knowingly yeah, funny. It's intentional. Only really in the middle section, like Act One, is just ropey as hell, and then with bad acting and slow pacing and a bad setup and things being confusing. And then Amanda Donahoe just rides in <laughs> and she just makes the second act just legendary. And the third act is just, you know, perfunctory and Hugh Grant disappears, which is a disappointment. So I don't know. It's like one third of a fantastic movie. And I kind of wish all of it was, was that, but I mean, I can't hate it. I can't throw it away because, as you say, I was not bored. Mm. I was in hysterics. I was in amazement at some of the practical stuff. I was in horror at some (laughs) of the poor execution of the vision scenes. But also just thought, oh, Ken, looking at all of the raping and the debauchery. Mm. But I don't know. I could never take against it. It seemed like it had a twinkle in its eye and a a smirk on its face the whole time so i i never hated it mm. so i i think we just just set that one yeah, free set free set it free <laughs> okay <laughs> off you go white worm <laughs> slither away ah, i'm off to appreciate mr flint's home Goodbye. i mean ken russell always oh. surprises me that's what i love about him like i mm. don't exactly love all his films but i'm always always surprised 
by what what he does. Yeah, this one's a bit of a cult favorite too. I think there are sort of um, you know costume wearing viewings where people get together oh, on the anniversary right. and. Yeah, it's one of those rocky horror things where it's it's really loved by a cult group of people. But um, right, yeah, <laughs> it's an odd one. It's an odd one. <laughs> yes. So Lars, it's been amazing having you with us again. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about uh, Hugh Grant and his White Worm. Uh, <laughs> where can people hear more about uh, your uh, opinions on films or uh, see your own creations? In fact, I'm on TikTok actually. <laughs> Uh, I, uh -huh. I, I I do make little tiny vlogs whenever we're on production. And um, we've recently started making English language horror films. And the TikTok vlogs uh, for that are in English too. Mm. So um, do check them out. I think I'm Lars Henriks on TikTok. I guess you will find me. You will find me. Lars Henriks. There aren't that many of us okay um <laughs> then of course there are my movies i've plugged them before so go on to tubi and you can watch my cthulhu trilogy if you if you like lair of the white worm and uh, stuff with this kind of tone and you have a tolerance for no budget stuff um then then check that out uh why hans wagner hates the starry sky is a, is a, is a very weird movie <laughs> Cordelia's Children is is I think weird too, and then and then there's Second Commando versus Cthulhu, which is a which is a weird found footage movie. Watch the three of them. I have a fondness for them because I made them, and uh, of, <laughs> they are of course genius. Then Leon Must Die is on Plex. Uh, I I didn't know what that is until Leon Must Die was on it, but you can you can Google <laughs> Plex and and it's it's free, so it's it's just with ads. Leon Must Die is a science fiction classic. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's on a list uh, that chronicles the 18 best science fiction films on Amazon Prime. It's not on Amazon Prime anymore, but it's on that list. Wow. So clearly, you need to watch it if you haven't seen it. And then there's Bear Kittens, uh, which is also on Tubi, uh, which is just mean girls in the Blair Witch Forest. And <laughs> if you like, if, if, if elements of Lair of the White Worms that you like include huge dildos and strap-ons, then go watch my movie Performaniacs, which is also on Tubi and on Amazon Prime and on other streaming sites. You can find it. Um, it's the South Park episode that Argento never made. Wow. So <laughs> go watch all of my movies and write uh, reviews on Letterboxd. Really, I wake up every morning and I check all my movies on Letterboxd. <laughs> I have a really happy day when there are new positive reviews. So. <laughs> Oh, I only wish Tubi were available in the UK. Well, Plex is. <laughs> Plex is. It is, yes, that's very mm. true. I will check it yeah, out. Yeah, me too. And I think I think Backhands and Performaniacs are on Amazon Prime in the in the UK. Yes, I checked them this morning because sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't and I can't figure yeah, out why. Yeah, I, I don't know. Streaming is complicated. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to check us out, then please follow us on all of our social channels. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, all sorts of things as movie oubliette and you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com yes and if you want to support us even more you can become a patron on patreon for as little as a dollar a month you get access to extended uh segments from our episodes and for five dollars you get access to our extended bonus material with our special guests and also access to our minisode which we recently did the lord of the rings animated 70s movie adaptation yeah which was uh a bit unfinished 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yes. Yeah, interesting to compare that to the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you want to check us out on YouTube, we are also on YouTube. We had a bunch of uh, amazing panels that we did recently for Iconicon, as well as some video essays and an upcoming video essay coming out very soon. So stay tuned on <laughs> YouTube. Yes, please do subscribe. And if you want some tat with our name on it, then head on over to Redbubble where you can buy uh, T-shirts, clocks, hats, all kinds of weird and wonderful things with the movie Oubliette logo on it. Uh, there's always a, a special sale or something going on. So, yeah, check it out. Yeah, maybe a bit of a change from all the royal paraphernalia that's been circulating at the moment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, Conrad, what are we doing for next episode? Well, speaking of patrons, the next episode was chosen by our patrons. We will be teaming up with Michael French of Retro Blasting, and out of a selection of films that he came up with, uh -huh. our patrons voted for... Battle Beyond the Stars. Right. I've heard so much about it. I, I know Michael always mentions it. Never seen it. Yes. Looking for no, it. he hasn't either, which what? is amazing. Cause really? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's the Roger Corman production that came out hot on the heels of Star Wars when everybody was trying to capitalize on Star Wars. Right. It's from 1980, and it stars Robert Thomas, Robert Vaughan, George Peppard, John Saxon, Sybil Danning, and Darlan Flugel, uh, with special effects by James Cameron, and a wow. score by James Horner. So, <laughs> Wow. Okay. James Horner again. Yep. James Horner again. Yes, we should get Serge back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. Yes, yes. Well, thanks again, listeners, for joining us on another episode. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> Welcome to Downton Hall, Mr.